Bonjour. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Diane Johnson, good morning. Good morning, Carol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> after uh, all of these months of confinement, I, I see us very soon in, in that charming little Italian restaurant around the corner from you. Yes, I, that appeals yes. to me, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I presume you saw today's New York Times where you're there uh, uh, talking about your favorite books? I did. I, someone sent me the link, yes. I didn't see it in the paper. I I, I get the um, local paper. The international edition. Yeah, which is terrible. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's 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 just the New York Times. It's no uh, doesn't represent anything local. No, but uh, the old the, the old days it was a lot of fun. You know. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Johnson Murray arrived from San Francisco. They'll be staying at the Hotel Lancaster. And blah 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 blah. Yeah. It was like a little bit of a. It was a lot of fun. It was more fun. fun. Definitely. You know, it's like everything else in life. It's become so globalized and homogenized that it's uh, exceedingly boring. Anyway, the, uh, the our occasion to talk, which not that you and I require any particular occasion, but uh, your latest book, Lorna Mott Comes Home. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. When did you first come to Paris with John? In 95, well, we had trips to Paris over the years, and then we came to live here in 95 when John uh, became director of the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease, which is a big NGO about focused on lung disease, as, as you guess. We might just, as a, you know, as a thought, a memorial to John uh, uh, John Murray, who wrote the textbook on pulmonology and was one of the foremost pulmonologists in the world. And uh, I was always had a soft spot in my heart because he was one of the great Brooklyn Dodger fans. I mean, he claims, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that he decided to do his residency at Kings County Medical Center in Brooklyn so he could be close to his beloved uh, Dodgers. Uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't need you to verify that. <laughs> I can't. If even if it's not true, I love. I love the story. Anyway, you're. Uh, so you arrived in 1995. Yes. And you began, I guess, uh, almost immediately, if not subconsciously, to prepare yourself for uh, writing *Le Divorce*. When did I write *Le Divorce*? That well, it was published in ninety seven. Okay, so yes, I must have started right away. Right, and as uh, I've always blamed you for the avalanche of bad books about <laughs> American women finding lovers in Paris, you you refuse to accept the uh, the, the title. <laughs> but there's been after that wonderful book, uh, you I, I think is when you were established as the Edith Wharton of your generation. It's true uh, that uh, there were a flurry of books, but it's a pretty irresistible subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Paris, anything with Paris in the well, in the case, it wasn't even the title, but the uh, it definitely is uh, is going to attract attract an audience. Talk a little bit about. I want to kind of go back and forth because this book 
is much more uh, recent, both in the pub date and in the uh, the story that you're telling about someone uh, having lived in France and going back to America. I, I don't want to do any spoilers. I don't like to talk about fiction with uh, a, a lot of specificity and let the uh, reader kind of get there. But I want to bookend uh, what you learned about that first book and and how dramatically different both America and France were as you approach the second book. So why don't we go back to uh, the divorce and just kind of briefly uh, summarize what that was all about, and then we can talk specifically. Okay, the divorce was um, about a newcomer, an American newcomer in France, all the things that were amazing, all the differences. Um, it's told by a young woman, Isabel, who comes to visit her sister, who is getting divorced from a Frenchman. Um, and the book concerns the adventures of Isabel and Roxy. Isabel falls in love with an older French diplomat, and so it's a bit about her experiences with him, his French family, and so on. And it was fun for me to write because I was just learning about France and noticing how they were about their cheese and how everyone wore a scarf and all those details, which are now very common. I don't see them anymore, but I did see them then. Um, then Laura Nomat Comes Home is the bookend, kind of, because some uh, it's an American woman, Lorna, who has been living in France for 20 years and goes back to America, also consequent to a divorce. She's divorcing her French husband. It could be it could be Isabel Isabel's story in a way too. Later. Yeah. And who were some of the? Uh, uh, the, the personalities that informed that first book. I, I know you knew a number of these American women who had probably gone through that experience. Well, I, I had a, a neighbor and friend um, who had gone through that experience, but it turned out that that is the Ur experience. Roxy's experience was the Ur American woman in Paris experience. Fall in love with the Count or, you know, some... Uh, attractive no, no, nobility aristocrat preferably or you know a french actor or some glamorous frenchman anyway and then the thing doesn't really work out for the variety of reasons that french people and american people don't necessarily all always get along has that scenario changed dramatically in the 30 years that you've been here no i don't think so well Maybe so, maybe so. I think Americans, for one thing, are less surprised. Each country is less surprised by the characteristics of the other. But Americans, in particular, are a little more worldly than they were 20 years ago. And so are the French. They were quite a lot more conservative, I think. Of kind of dis distant planets. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly it. Now they see each other on TV all the time, so... Well, they're all in front of their kids are all in front of their computers, and there's a lot more English being spoken. Yeah, there's not a surprise. Enthusiasm. Yeah. Yes. And it, it was kind of a no-no to speak French or 
uh, uh, I mean, to speak English in those days. Um, um, yeah, I mean, the, the waiters in the restaurants went out of their way to make you feel incompetent. <laughs> uh, yeah. But they, now they, they, they don't mind having a few uh, American dollars in their pockets. They try to, to work on their English. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They like to speak English. They don't want us to speak That's French. That's right. Uh, you know, in between that period and, and, and this book, uh, uh, you wrote a, a book that I, that I really adored uh, uh, called Fly Over. Flyover Lives. The Lives. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that me or got the gunfire here? Gunfire? Oh no, I heard I heard a lot of noise in the oh, background. I didn't hear it here, so we're a few okay. blocks away. Okay. No, 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 I wasn't I, I was being facetious. I just heard some rustling, some noise. Oh. Maybe something in the computer. But Flyover Lives because you, you were not quite the sophisticated person you've become. You were from uh, one of the uh, tri cities of Moline, Illinois. Uh, better known as the home of John Deere. And um, you led a, a very uh, uh, flyover life. Talk a little, a little bit about growing up in Moline and how it, how it prepared you uh, for this life. Um, I, growing up in Moline, which was probably a wonderful place to grow up, although because it's small, I think it's still 35,000 people or so on the Mississippi. Um, it was, it was wonderful because it was very homogenous for one thing and so there was a strong community uh, backup not much dissension or diversity you could see these things as defects now but then it gave you a, a strong sense of who you were and what the rules in life were and so on so a kind of calm confidence I see, I see Mickey Rooney as Andy Hardy living in Moline. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, other people have commented on the Midwestern character and so on. But one ca characteristic of Midwesterners are that they can't wait to get out and see the world. So that, that was pretty much my story, too. Well, you, you, you went from Moline to New York on a, a cosmopolitan scholarship, was it? Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle, yeah. okay. Yeah. Talk about that. that. That must have been a bit of a, uh, I won't say a shock, but uh, it was a, an education. Yeah, it was a bit of an education. I'd never been um, east at all. Uh, I grew, you know, really never east of the Mississippi, um, though I grew up on the East Bank. Um, and so the big city was pretty scary. Mademoiselle at that time, it was a program for girls who had entered a sort of contest that it ran every summer. Sylvia Plath was the most well-known of, of the girls in my class. Um, and, uh, and you went to New York for a month and met fashion designers and ballet dancers and wrote articles for Mademoiselle about your experiences. Yeah, this was the Barbizon Hotel. You stayed at the Barbizon Hotel for Women. Right. Which actually was the subject, there was a, a movie in the 40s, I believe, called uh, Weekend uh, Hotel for Women. 
was was there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, where a guy comes with his tuxedo uh, tails uh, to pick up the woman downstairs. No one's allowed up in the rooms. And you know, yeah, it was. Oh, it, it was, was definitely like that. It was a safe place for young, uh, yeah. naive women from the Midwest. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't it, uh, I had a Mormon friend, and it was, it, it, it was even too risky for for her family. She had to stay at the Mormon safe house or something up uh, almost in Brooklyn. Did that have, did I have some kind of a transformative uh, effect on you? That experience? I'm sure it did. It really opened my eyes. I also met people, made you know friends. Um, but at the time, it, it was kind of an anti-experience. I thought, oh no, I, I never would want to live there or be in that world. And in fact, it's just the world that I ended up in, so. You know, when you, uh, in, in between, once again, you, you wrote several books in, in between the divorce, uh, La Fer, Le Mariage, uh, but one in particular that I, I believe you wrote for the uh, Smithsonian or National Geographic, pardon me for confusing them, it's called Into a Paris Cartier, yes. where you're kind of like a uh, an adult Nancy Drew start walking through your neighborhood in the 6th uh, with a... Uh, uh, a, a Oh, a magnifying glass, uh, looking for clues as to what happened here. Talk about that. as a, a wonderful little book, and I recommend it constantly to people who want to get a sense of that neighborhood. Talk about the that work book on that. That book was a lot of fun. It was fun. for the National Geographic, and it was a series that they had of writers writing about places that they lived or liked. And uh, so I chose my neighborhood. It's where I live in Paris. And it's one of the oldest neighborhoods in Paris. So... Of course, it had a lot of rich historical associations, and well, yeah, Saint Germain de Prey. And so it's right near the Institut de France, which is where the French Academy meets, and which was which was built in sixteen fifteen, I think, um, and had the second dome in Paris. The, you know, have the first dome in Paris, and then the second dome is actually, uh, I see it out my kitchen window at, at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. Hmm. And that, built, that dome was, uh, domes were an architectural discovery brought to France by Catherine de' Medici, because they were known, of course, in... in <clears throat> Yeah, because of Brunelleschi and, and, and uh, uh, Italians. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you might also say, I believe you did a lot of research. There's a, li a beautiful little library there that's uh, not particularly well known the, to most. Uh, uh, Bibliotheque Mazarin. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's been closed yeah, now yeah. during the pandemic, so I haven't been for a while. But um, it's, yes, it's a an example of one of the most beautiful libraries in the world, double, maybe even triple-heighted with, um, with, I don't know what you call them, not terraces, balconies around with shelves and shelves of books reaching up to the vaulted ceiling. 
Yeah, not I me. Mean, not as not as uh, overwhelming as the Bibliothèque Nationale and probably uh, a little more focused. But uh, apparently, for you, it's a, it's a, a great place to uh, absolutely. Hang out it's and work just around the corner. Discovered. So, um, so it was I, a French writer friend, Mireille Ouchon, told me about it, um, and told me how to get in, which is actually pretty easy with your passport and the reason to be there. Sure. Yeah, I mean, actually, you can take little uh, little tours as well. I've uh, escorted people up there to get a look at it because we, uh, again, it's it's a beautifully uh, yeah. unknown a little treasure uh, just facing the, the, the Pont des Arts. And I think the building is 1661 or something. It was under the, it was when Mazarin was, or Pietro Mazzarini, <laughs> Uh, was uh, the, the right hand man to uh, Louis the Fourteenth before uh, uh, before Colbert? Uh, a little more on that. I believe that the uh, the church, which has had a beautiful interior restoration, uh, is one of, if not the oldest. The church, the church in, in the Institute. Oh, it's uh, no, yes, it's Saint Germain. The, the church at Saint Germain uh, is was. Began, begun in the sixth century, so it, of course it had a lot of phases and a lot of uh, restarts, uh, and most of it dates now from the eleven hundreds, but that's pretty old too. It's a thousand years old. Right. No, I think it, I think it may be the old. and the the restoration. I mean, it's one of those things where you you pass by it all the time and and never. Or, you know, I did for many many years and never went in. And then I had a client that I just wanted to walk in, and I was just overwhelmed by the the quality of the restoration. The uh, my God, the colors and the and the woodwork and the the painting. Uh, it's just you know don't miss it when you're here in Paris, and it's right across the street <laughs> from the Dumago. So after you have your coffee, it's an easy stroll to get over there. What else did you discover about your neighborhood that perhaps is not as well known? Well. I found that a lot of it was well known, like the Saint Germain de Prey and the Domingo, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so most of my research involved trying to get into the courtyards of the um, the seventeenth and eighteenth century fabulous private houses, uh, which are still here. Was the story is that. Though Paris began itself on the Ile de la Cité and the Ile Saint-Louis, uh, rich speculators in the 50, late 1500s uh, started to buy land on the left bank to build bigger houses. And um, so they had to build a bridge. They built the Pont Neuf was at that time a new bridge. And, um, and I believe it was the first bridge that didn't have a retailer or uh Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, the way, yeah. I believe so. Because, you know, we yes, think of the bridges in little houses in on them. The Ponte Vecchio. Yeah, or shops. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that it didn't at that time, but possibly not. And then um, you crossed the... River, you came almost immediately to um, Queen Marguerite. She had bought a big tract of land and built 
a castle for herself. She was then married to Henri Cat, Henry IV, one of their main kings before Louis. Yeah, he, he decided to convert from uh, Protestantism to Catholicism. He's, you know, my that, yeah, my, uh, it's worth, yeah, can, uh, Paris is worth a mass. Worth a mass, yeah, and that it was the Reine Margot, which is actually quite a, uh, an excellent film to see uh, with uh, Daniel hmm. Montaigne in the role of Henry IV, uh, talking about the St. Mar uh, Bartholomew Day Massacre and the, the, the great tension between the Catholics and the Huguenots. Uh, he was somewhat transformative in terms of taking that role and uh, getting rid of some of the hideous behavior that the, the Catholics. Yes, it was some of the main events of the Bartholomew Day's massacre uh, happened on Movis County, which is um, across the street and a uh, hundred yards away. So also in this, and it's only one one block long, one, one block long. And we might mention it's that's not named for uh, no. uh, the um, Who is it named for, though? I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's just like in Paris, there's a sign yeah. that will tell us, you know, yeah, but there is I don't think there, know, what, there isn't a, a sign that I've seen for the Visconti of the street. So maybe it is named for, you know, re, renamed. For the no, director, they, no, they do rename. <laughs> I think they're. I think Catherine Deneuve has a street, maybe. Um, but anyway, the street where Racine lived and other notables, um, it had big doors on both ends, and so some of the Huguenots got in there and barricaded themselves in, so that they wouldn't get massacred. But quite a few did anyway. Yeah, you know, and they spread out. I mean, or for example, uh, the wine business in South Africa was launched by a, a French Huguenot who escaped and began to uh, practice a viticulture. Uh, back in, I guess we're looking in the early 17th century, yeah. they got away. Was, oh, uh, I was just going to hey, say, hey, yeah, hey, a lot of ahead, Huguenot sorry. went to England and became weavers, mm -hmm. or they were weavers and artisans of that kind. And so they took their trades. They were pretty portable and went to America, to England, to the Netherlands. Um, well, what is uh, probably the most dramatic changes you've seen in your neighborhood in the... Uh, really, I haven't the seen that many changes. I, for one thing, all the buildings are protected. You don't have the right to repaint right. them in a strange color or... Uh, and and they've been there since uh, the seven sixteen hundreds and seventeen hundreds, and so it's not likely that they're going to tear them down now. I hope. Uh, yeah, and what about from a, a social aspect? Uh, you know, you and I both tend to. Uh, I tend to prefer the uh, Demago because I'm I'm still a little uh, irritated with the management at the floor and. Uh, Francis, the former general manager there, is now at the Demago, which is always a, a better excuse to be there. Uh, have you seen any dramatic changes outside of the fact that you might be hearing a little um, more English in the capital? The most recent change is the, the departure of English speakers because of the confinement. So it's been quite mm -hmm. a bit more French lately. 
the Americans are starting to come back, but it hasn't really happened all the way. I had lunch at the, no, I had dinner the other night at the Domego, where I never go, as you know, you and I have talked about that. And it was really very good. Sure. <laughs> really? So maybe I'll become a convert. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I just, I find it like a little unnecessarily expensive, but I, I love, well, I, just I love sitting burger, here and having the coffee. So. What I do miss though is, oh yeah, yeah, but post, uh, post uh, COVID, if we can say that, uh, the, you used to be able to grab the, the Figaro in the New York Times. Uh, I could do my, uh, my crossword puzzle and save uh, roughly four euros, but no more. Oh, I know. Isn't that puzzles. a shame? So, I, it took me a while uh, to figure out why those things had disappeared. Yeah, because you and I remember, I came here for the first time at 74, you know, yeah. when all the papers were on a wooden dowel, uh, so, so you couldn't take it away. Uh, but they supplied, you know, Liberation for the lefties, Figaro for the centrists, <laughs> for the serious people, uh, the Herald Tribune for those of us who are addicted to crossword puzzles as a way of keeping our English uh, somewhat intact. Um, but, you know, I think that even though we've lost uh, an enormous number of uh, both bistro and, and cafes over certainly over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, uh, it, it still remains a, a quintessential part of uh, uh, quotidian life, uh, certainly for us and for the French. And I think is one of the reasons why uh, we Americans like to come here. Uh, it's just a total guerrilla theater. You grab a, a table, you have your uh, Café Clemme for now six euros and 40, but it's like two cups of coffee. And you engage in a conversation with an 80-year-old woman next to you who is not 80 years old. She's beautifully appointed, smells wonderful. I mean, she's just a, a sexy, dynamic person who just happens to be 80 years old. Uh, or you speak to a man to the right of you who was involved in resistance during the war. And our conversations tend to be about culture and, and books and, and history and not about uh, how much money I made in the market yesterday and the the rise in the value of my property. That's right. It's, it's uh, a whole um, sympathetic scene in not only in bistros, but sort of the bus. You could have those conversations. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Interestingly enough. Uh, on the bus, yeah, the bus is very uh, democratic and, and very open. I think, I don't know, you get down into that, that hole in the, in the ground and, and people yeah, are too. a yeah. little tense. Uh, yeah. They don't feel Well, for open. one thing, it's so fast that they're going to get off at the next station. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you want to <laughs> initiate a romance, you better be exactly. fast. Fast and effective, you know. I remember those days. You know, in the in the interregnum between uh, Le DeVos and, and Lorna Mott, uh, it, it seemed that you became a staff writer for the New York Review of Books. And a, a great deal of your writing uh, and, and, and reviews in the New York Review were practically like a book in terms of their length. I, it was, their I, I did actually collect essays up to a point, and it, it, they became a book called, yeah, Terrorists and Novelists. And it was some some literary criticism. And I'd had some wonderfully juicy cases to write about the Patty Hearst. Uh, Is this book still available? Remaindered somewhere, probably. And the title Terrorists again, and Novelists. 
I'll look and see if I have any copies here. Do you see a <laughs> distinction between the two? In the 70s, I think I, I first wrote, so that's been a long time. I believe it was at the end of the 70s. Mm -hmm. It was a book about Vietnam that, I, that they, for some reason, sent me to review. I think they were experimenting having women write for them and having a woman write about a sort of typically male subject. I, th I think it was, I, it must, I, they never told me this, but I think that must have been what was in their mind because there was absolutely no connection between me and the Vietnam War. Yeah. And General Westmoreland. <laughs> well, I mean, as, as a mother at the time, it's still, you know, one always yeah. is a mother, even when the kids are 70, one continues to be a parent. Uh, how did that impact your feeling uh, about that war and, uh, and inform your writing? As you mean, being a parent? Being a parent, uh, more so yeah. being being a mother. Uh, another distinction: uh, writing about Vietnam at that point when it the was war blazing was along. Well, I was, you know, along. like everybody uh, outside the South, I guess, uh, a anti-Vietnam. We lived in Berkeley at the time, so there was virtual unanimity on how you were to feel about the war. So I don't think that was even an issue. Well, I don't think you were right. allowed to have a position that didn't. Uh, yeah, and you, and you wouldn't have anyway. Um, so this was a book was uh, called Friendly Fire, and it was about uh, an American. It's been a long time now. I sort of forgotten, but. It was an incident. There was a, yeah, there was a TV movie. It was it was uh, somebody who was killed by a friendly fire, an American soldier, and the book then concerned kind of the cover up and the way the army behaved and and so on. It was an expose or a, an investigative book, um, and. Mm -hmm. That's about all I re remember of it. How, how obviously, apart from the fact that we, we lost uh, John uh, in the early stages of COVID, all I just by say he was about 92 or 93, so it's well, difficult to claim that COVID was totally responsible. But how dramatically has your professional life uh, changed uh, and your personal life since the, uh, the outbreak, the confinement, and now the, uh, the liberation. Well, of course, being a widow suddenly um, requires a lot of adjustment, uh, and I don't think I'll ever adjust to that. Uh, being confined for a year, as we all were, that was hard to get used to, too. So I hardly know how to apportion the, the shocks which was which was which, but it has been a tough year. And how much of this book uh, was written in that period, or was it? Lorna, Lorna was pretty much Lorna written. Mott. John had a had read it, for example, you know, read the manuscript. Um, is yeah. That, is yes. that something always, you always yeah. did prior to publication? And Sometimes, did he come to you with editorial yeah. suggestions or insights. Yeah. yeah, he was a good reader and a kind of natural editor, and so he he had things to say. He liked it. Yeah.
Well, I, I've just seen some early uh, early press. It uh, looks like it's uh, so far so good. Yeah, I've really been great. Yeah, I, mean, I think the Washington yeah. Post had something very nice to say. Uh, uh, you were interviewed. Well, today's New York Times. We can talk a little bit about that, about your your interest and your preferences in in reading a, a sub, yeah the by the book yeah to get a sense of what they're yeah by the book. Um, but let's just come back a little bit to uh, with, without giving anything away. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, obviously. Uh, autobiography and everything that we write and going back uh, as Lorna in a sense uh, how did that you know Im impact you you're writing about something that you at some level going back as you did every year to California uh, you know uh, was affected by uh, and do, do you feel more French these I'm days? happier living here I, I think it's very much easier to live in France than it is to live in America now, uh, just fighting the healthcare system in America, the automobile takes hours out of your day. You have to not to mention uh, lots of money out of your pocket. Lots of money out of your pocket. Yeah, no, um, and here you have the movies a short walk away, the you know a restaurant at at your elbow no matter where you are. And or it's a cafe so, that doesn't require you to step up to the bar and start drinking $15 glasses of wine yeah, to be able to safeguard your position. That's right. So it, it's just set up for human life mm -hmm. in a better way than, you know, San Francisco, where I live when I go to California, is a nice city. I like it very much. It's beautiful. But my apartment is at the top of a hill, so it requires serious thought or commitment to trudge down to get the paper or whatever. Uh, and with the spectacle, specter of walking back up, back up. you do get in shape. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, and I, I, you know, I lived in San Francisco for about 35 years also. In the Bay yeah. And, but it's, it's so dramatically changed. Uh, and in San me, Francisco, yeah. San yeah I mean, physically, it's still beautiful, and the Europeans and the French especially love to come there. But the, the fabric of life, the cost of, cost of living has become so excessive. That the things you know, we could walk down to the uh, Gudeli Square at the Buena Vista Cafe on a, a foggy Saturday morning and have a have breakfast and an Irish coffee, and can't really do that anymore. It doesn't have the same vibe that it had in those days. No, I know. Um, not only the expense, but just uh, the extra traffic that now you know makes it impossible to park if you have a car. Um, there's still buses, luckily, in San Francisco, mm -hmm. but um, downtown is sort of shabby and run down now. Right, not back in the days when people, ladies went to the city of Paris or, or Macy's to Bloom's for a little coffee, took off I'm, their gloves. I'm magnet, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. A different, uh, different world. I, I've, in many respects, I, I prefer that world than the one we live in now. I think it was kinder and gentler. Uh, it and was. I, I, I think it's what we, we enjoy here. Certainly those of us who have reached in certain age, uh, I mean, I, you know, yeah. as, as a widow, I, I mean, I think that people are more conscious of you. People are uh, looking out for you in a sense, if you're walking down a metro. I mean, I, I've been offered seats on the metro by, uh, by young, young people. Uh, 
and I, I or if it's a young woman, I have to say, <laughs> is it my age or my beauty? Why am I? Why are you offering me this? <laughs> but you know the answer, of course. So it's like there's an excessive, you know, yeah, yeah an excessive level of uh, of generosity yes. of spirit that I think yeah, is quite natural uh, politeness. You know, in well, yeah, that that that's the uh, civility. I yeah. think is so ingrained uh, in the yeah. way people live here, and I think you alluded to it. Daily life there is very stressful. You know, here you step on the uh, on the foot of a six foot man from Africa in front of you, uh, and he turns around and apologizes, telling you ah, yeah, yeah. it was his fault. I mean, it, it's so ingrained. Uh, and whereas we're always looking looking for comfort. I know, I know. Uh, so yeah, we've been very fortunate. You know, I feel very Me privileged too. to live here. You know, as you and I used to discuss over mm -hmm. a moose burger. Uh, which, for those who never lived in San Francisco, is not a, yeah, a moose, a moose, a, a moose burger, but a hamburger <laughs> yeah. served at Moose's restaurant. Yeah, Ed, Ed Moose. Those were uh, fun. Those were fun days. And those were uh, good burgers. A very good burger. Yeah, absolutely. And a nice, uh, right in Washington Square, right a, a catty corner to where uh, Joe DiMaggio and uh, Marilyn Monroe were married and where my children went to elementary school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that city. That's the, that's another story for you to write, but uh, but Lorna Mott uh, I, I think sums up a, a lot. As I say, I see it as a bookend yeah. to that experience of someone having lived here for a long period of time. And I'm not going to. No spoilers will Good. be uh, announced here. But one of the things in reading uh, the article today in the Times, uh, at the very end, you talk about the fact that as a genre, you don't like detective fiction. But earlier on, you talk about Lucas Davenport and uh, Virgil Flowers, uh, John Sanford's, uh, and I, I agree with you. I, I Virgil to me is just a, a great read. He's yeah. so full of energy. Lucas has become this kind of button-down, uh, although it may be <laughs> I think it is. Morning, uh, yeah, <laughs> policeman. What is it? So how do you distinguish the fact? It's almost like watching an old uh, movie that you liked, not a long movie. You know, back in the days where they're only an hour and a half. Uh, and uh, I would rather pick up, a, uh, I'm, I'm rereading something by Lee Child that I read. Uh, it was the first Lee Child I'd ever read before I knew who he was. And in a way, it's very satisfying because you know the main character. You know his behaviors. You know his, uh, his entourage. And it just, it's, you know, when you're in between reading War and Peace, uh, right now, I'm, no, I'm rereading uh, A Savage War of Peace by Alistair Horn uh, about the, the war in Algeria. Uh, it's a film out called Des Hommes with uh, Depardieu talking about four veterans from that war, how how horrible it was, and and how their lives are still infected in this rural village 30 years later. So it takes me back to this and Ponte Corvo's Battle of Algiers. Uh, I, I think it's very instructive to understand the the psychology that the French have with that experience with Algeria. Yeah, and particularly those who were. A colonist and live there because they don't consider it Algeria. Uh, they consider it to be France. They forget that in 1830 it was taken over by the French. Anyway, that's my political <laughs> yeah. diatribe uh, with a literary uh, foment to it. You also mentioned uh, successful books that are horribly written, and I agree with you. I thought that Da Vinci Code was absolutely <laughs> hideous as a piece of literature, uh, and uh, but it, it sold and sold. And yeah, sold. that's it's a, instructive to uh, any novelist uh, about the power of story. Well, when you when you're in the process of creating a story, how how conscious are you of that in terms of the ultimate marketability of it, or 
uh, uh, the divorce was made by your friends, James Ivory and is is Ismail Merchant. Uh, are you looking ahead to the uh, where that that book is going to go? Or are you just writing the book for yourself? I'm just writing the book. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I won't deny that I'd be glad if James Ivory read it and mm -hmm. decided to make a film, but uh, or you know some other director. But it would be nice to work with him. Well, there is a there's a biography coming out uh, of of Ivory. Is there? Uh, I'll dig out the title for you uh, very very soon. I'm sure he mentions you in the book. I hope so. Well, I, I had I had coffee with Ismail uh, at at the Domingo uh, many 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 years ago. Yeah, he's been gone for a while. He has. Yeah, he was a charming, elegant man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very much. And they made some wonderful films. I, uh, some, uh, I, I don't. Unfortunately, I don't consider what they did to your book to be a wonderful film. But that's neither here nor there. It, it certainly uh, uh, brought uh, Paris to the attention of a lot of people. But I, I go back and I watch something like Remains of the Day, uh, and of course you have the great Hopkins in that in that key role. But, yeah. Uh, those really stand out to me. And. Uh, as, as, as cinematic works, as opposed to literary Def works. Yeah, definitely. What, oh, what's on the horizon for you now? Uh, are you working on an, another book or just taking a deep breath? No, I'm, I am working on a book that, um, I don't know if you've noticed that my 40-year-old book, Mrs. Meredith, or Lesser Lives, has oh, you come were supposed out. to hand one off to me. I'm still waiting. For I have one off. for you. It's okay, it was well, over lunch. <laughs> okay. We'll talk about Mrs. Um, Meredith. Yeah, let's not. Uh... Well, anyway, she she was reissued lately, and this kind of revived my interest in a character that interested me at the time, and so much so that I'd been collecting things about him and putting them in a box all this time. So I have the research is pretty much all done on. Fighting Nichols, who was a sea captain, sort of a Jack Aubrey uh, of uh, of exactly the same period, mm -hmm. uh, the Napoleonic period. Uh, but his what interests me about him is his fierce anti-slavery activities. He was uh, a very abolitionist and and led his life chasing slave ships and, and trying to reform practices of slavery in, on different islands and so on. And, but he was an interesting character, very colorful. So I'm writing a little book about him. Yeah, and it coincidentally with everything that's going on around six, uh, June 16th and, and the... Uh, yeah, it the turns out to be quite topical. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's perfect timing, although I'm sure it was not what, uh, what led, you, led you in that direction. No, um, <laughs> but it's coincidental, yeah. And it's just going to be the same. You, uh, this last book was published by our friends at Knopf. Uh, yes, and I hope they'll publish this. Yeah. Diane, okay. it's, it's always great to talk. Uh, we can talk uh, on and on and on. As we go back, uh, I remember we first met, uh, it must have been in the late 90s at... Uh, in Marin County, what was the name of that bookshop? Oh, the you know what I'm talking about uh, Elaine Petrocelli. Uh, oh yeah, uh, um, the uh, oh I'm thinking of the the one on up in Marin. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't, okay, I don't, come to me. But in any yeah. any event, I leaned in and you signed my book and I said something to you in in French and then uh, we met again and uh, over 
and it's been a wonderful friendship for me for a, a long period of time. We've been friends for a long time. Yeah, long time. Yes, well, great to catch up. We will uh, we will book lunch when we uh, finish this conversation. Uh, once again, Diane Johnson. The book is Lorna Mott Comes Home, uh, actually, which will be published uh, today as this program will be airing uh, next week. Diane, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, continued good luck, and um, I will see you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Terrence. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at Terrence at Paris-Expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris dash expat.com and visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the city of light until next time abiento a paris